Today for Primer, we're talking to Mark Schwartz. Mark's a kindred spirit, taking an empathetic approach to digital transformation in large organisations. He's also the author of several books, including War and Peace and IT, and The Delicate Art of Bureaucracy, where he shares many of his lessons learned from the front lines of digital transformation. Mark was a CIO of US Citizenship and Immigration Services from 2010 to 17, where he provoked the federal government into adopting agile and DevOps practices. Along the way, overcoming a planet-sized policy for overseeing delivery of technology systems. Mark's now with Amazon Web Services, where he works with executives from many of the world's largest organizations, helping them overcome impediments to digital transformation. Here's your primer with Mark Schwartz. So uh, I thought we'd start a bit by talking about your background. Um, how did you end up uh, being CIO at US Citizenship and Immigration Services? Yeah, it wasn't an obvious place for me to wind up, I would say. So uh, at some point in my life, I was in San Francisco and I was, I was in the Silicon Valley startup scene, you know, like a lot of other people. Uh, and bouncing around between different opportunities and trying to raise money for things. And uh, the upshot of it all was I became CEO of a small software company mm -hmm. in the Bay Area. And uh, after doing that for a little while, I decided that the CIO role was really what I wanted. And I found an opportunity with this really interesting company in San Francisco that ran international cultural exchange programs and educational programs. So they brought au pairs to the United States and placed them with families, and they ran high school, year abroad programs and things like that. So if you think about that as an industry, um, there really isn't anything else in the industry, right? The, the obvious next step is immigration after that because that's basically what we were doing. Yeah. And uh, I was reading an article about um, the U.S. government's IT systems, basically, and I happened to mention Homeland Security, and implied that things were a little bit messed up. And I love hard problems. And uh, being, you know, the arrogant person that I am, I immediately thought, oh, I could fix this, you know. Uh, so I applied for a job and, uh, and wound up being the CIO of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is in the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah, yeah. And that was in, in 2010, right? Yes. And, and so what did you find when you got there? <laughs> it was an interesting learning journey, I would say. Um, you know, I didn't really know what to expect. I didn't know, you know, there's a stereotype of government employees as being a little bit slow and lazy and whatever, and I didn't know if that was what I was going to see when I got there. Uh, and I was, I was pretty startled to find out that I was working with some of the best people I'd ever worked with before. Uh, definitely very mission-driven. Um, excited about what they were doing. Yeah. And uh, what I realized pretty quickly is that they're working really hard to do the right things, but they're so constrained, they often can't. And uh, they've gotten used to the frustration in many cases, but they really want to do the right thing. And they're acting under so many constraints, not just constraints, but also everyone looking over their shoulder, yeah. right? You don't, you don't have just one or two stakeholders to please. You have 
I don't know, the, the management of your agency and the parent agency, and you have the Office of Management and the Budget and the Government Accountability Office and the Inspector General and uh, the public and the press and everybody else, uh, and it's a hard environment to do well in. What, what sort of size was uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services? The agency was about 20,000 people altogether. Uh, my IT organization was about 2,000 people. Okay. And you were part of um, Department of Homeland uh, Security. Security, which is big. Yeah. Um, they formed Homeland Security by combining about 22 different agencies. This was after 9-11 and all of that. Um, so it was really sort of a merger of a bunch of different companies. And all of a sudden they had to figure out how to work together. So there, was, there were a lot of complications that came from that as well. In the delicate art of bureaucracy, you, you talk a bit about the bureaucracy that was in US uh, citizenship and immigration. Can you tell us a bit more about, uh, about that? Yeah. Uh, that's another subject I learned a lot about, of course. Um, the government is a bureaucracy. I mean, that's, that's the point of it. Yeah. Um, historically, bureaucracy was really the solution to mass democracy when monarchies disappeared, right? Uh, in a monarchy, the monarch just can do whatever they want. I mean, the, the country's them. Um, with democracy, you needed some sort of structure that was based on legal principles and roles that people fit into and so on. So bureaucracy is the obvious government solution. Um, and what I found is there's often good thinking behind it. You know, the, it, it's an attempt to take certain policies and encode them in the way the government works and certain controls that are important for accountability to the public and so on. So there's often a good reason behind any piece of bureaucracy that you come across, um, but nevertheless it gets in the way when you're trying to do new things. It, it creates a lot of friction uh, when it comes to change and we obviously needed a lot of change. So these new things, was it more about working in a new way or was it more about delivering more things. Yeah, I, I always thought about it in terms of speed. And um, at first it wasn't obvious that governments need speed, you know, that that's just not their thing, right? Um, but that, that hides the reality, I think. Um, so uh, I like to tell the example of Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, which was President Obama's signature initiative. You know, this, this was his big immigration thing. And when he announced it, he announced it was gonna be rolled out in 60 days. And um, that was impossible, right? At the speed that we move normally, there was no way to do it in 60 days. And it was gonna take a lot of technological change and so on. Um, and we, we had to find a way to do it, so we did. But it wasn't a sustainable way. You know, you, uh, our conclusion was that we were going to have to be much more responsive to changes in immigration policy because there were going to be a lot of them. What, um, what was a kind of typical uh, release cycle before that 60 days thing was, I think? Yeah, it was, it was there were a lot of things unbelievable and this was one of them. So we had an 18-month cycle between releases of each of our major systems. This was the average. Uh, and when I first got there, I couldn't understand how that's possible, you know. We had, at one point, we had uh, some sort of minor changes to a website that had to go out, and, and I asked my team when it would be uh, put into production, and they said, take us about eight months. And, and I said, well, it's just a few changes on the web page, right? And they said, yeah, eight months. 
Uh, and I said, is, it, does, is this because we're using a contractor and the contractor is so terrible, or what? how could it take you 18 months for that? And they said, actually, we were going to say something longer, but we thought you'd be angry. <laughs> Eight months is, is actually faster than we can do it. Um, and the reason is um, you, you can't just release code. You know, you, you have to go through a process. And the process, they told me, was called MD-102, Management Directive 102, which was this big, thick document you know, that said, before you can do a release, you have to do all of these different steps. And it involved 87 documents wow. and 11 gate reviews and 22 different oversight roles that people had to fill and, and stuff like that. So making the change to the website was you know, the tiniest piece of it. It was, it was all this other stuff that you had to do that took the time. So if we wanted to be responsive to changes in immigration, we were, we were going to have to find a way to not do things like that. Yeah, yeah. So where did that um, MD-102 come from? It was a, a homeland security policy. And um, again, this came from the fact that homeland security was created very suddenly after the events of 9-11. And they, they merged all these, all these different agencies. And Congress and everybody else was watching over everything they did. You know, they had so much scrutiny over yeah. everything. And so one of the first things they had to do was prove that they were using their money responsibly. That was, you know, first imperative. And there were so many wasteful projects in the government. So they, they created this framework, MD-102. They borrowed a lot of the ideas from the military. But the idea is it would show that they had complete control every, over every project and every, everything that they spent money on. And one of the ironies is that they were gonna use that for all of their purchases and, and all of their systems development. Everything from the Coast Guard building a new, uh, a new ship to their small software projects like our, our little change of the website. And of course the risk profiles are very different on those. Was that an example then of what you would call a bad bureaucracy? I, I think it was. Um, so I, I distinguish uh, between good bureaucracies and bad bureaucracies, which sounds a little strange, because what we call bureaucracy is usually the bad bureaucracies, the ones that are in our way. Um, so uh, in my book about bureaucracy, uh, I, that was the last book I published, uh, I point out that bureaucracy is all around us all the time. We just don't notice it yep. because, in general, it's not bad bureaucracy. It doesn't have these characteristics of bureaucracy getting in our way. Um, in business, bureaucracy is very important. It's, it's essentially the structure of all companies and uh, federal agencies. But it plays a big role, for example, in branding, um, where you don't, you don't think of it as, as being bureaucracy. but. A company that has a val valuable brand, like McDonald's or Coca-Cola or something, they have to protect that brand, and they have to make sure everything is consistent with that brand, right? They have to use certain fonts and certain colors. They, all their communications have a certain language style, um, and all those things are very important in, in maintaining a brand. And so they have branding guidelines that are a very strict bureaucracy. You know, if you want to do something outside the guidelines, you're going to have to get permission after permission to do it. There are books of rules about how you do all these things. Um, it's a beautiful bureaucracy because it adds a lot of value for them. It builds the value of their brand. So uh, that's an example of a good bureaucracy. And, and I could name a lot of good bureaucracies. 
But what people generally use the term for bureaucracy is the, is, you know, the horrible soul-destroying, you know, existential threat bureaucracy, the, you know, it's bigger than me and, you know, I, I can't fight it because it's so big kind of bureaucracy. You arrived as a new CIO in 2010. Could you just ignore that MD-102? Uh, I could not. Um, and part, uh, I mean, I couldn't. Technically, this was the policy I had to follow. And it was not just enforced on me by the overseers, you know, the, the guardians of MD-102, but everybody had internalized it. You know, so it, my employees were enforcing it on me, essentially, right, because they had developed all the processes based on MD-102. Um, what wound up happening, though, is um, with MD-102, we realized that we were just not being successful with IT projects. And everybody realized that. Um, they just couldn't conceive of an alternative, you know, because this was, this was a way to have control as far as they could tell. And you can't just throw away your controls. I mean, Congress is overseeing you and the public and the press and everything. So uh, they felt like something needed to change. And when I got there and I said, I can tell you how it needs to change, you know, <laughs> I have an idea for you. Um, they were somewhat receptive, at least um, my manager and my dotted line managers and, and up the chain from me. Uh, when I actually tried to start changing things, all of the, um, the, the risk aversion came out, right? You know, yes, yes, in theory, we want to change things, but we can't do what you say. Uh, and the way we overcame that really was by proposing pilots and proofs of concept. We said, look, you don't have to commit, okay? Let's just once try doing it this way. And if you don't like it, we'll just go back to the old way. Uh, and that reduced the risk enough yeah. for the oversight body that they, they were willing to, to try it out. And we showed why it's a better way to do things, why it would let us get results better, why it would let us manage our contractors better and uh, make more effective use of our money. And slowly we built support for the new way of doing it. Yeah, that's great. So you had some support already from your kind of hierarchy. I think in the book you also mentioned that there's something called healthcare.gov. That kind of, right? uh, had a few problems around about the same time, is that right? Yeah, it's the, it's the classic story that, you know, if you want to make big changes, make sure you take advantage of every crisis that comes yeah, up, yeah. you know, because that's a great opportunity. Um, so healthcare.gov, the government uh, under Obama, released this new website for um, health, health insurance programs. And uh, they promoted it very heavily. This was a very big thing. And immediately when they released it, it just crashed pretty much permanently. You know, it just couldn't work. And so they had to struggle to, to dig themselves out from under it. And most of us who are involved in agile IT and, and DevOps and, and the newer ways of doing things could recognize the syndrome very quickly. You know, we, we saw what happened. They had uh, a fixed date when they had to release this because the president had made promises, and yet they kept expanding the scope of it despite the feedback they were getting from the team that was building it. They uh, had a number of contractors working on it with lots of finger pointing between them. It was in a very healthy atmosphere for doing the development. Uh, so because that was such a big and visible and public disaster, it was easy for me to go around saying, you know, do you really want that to happen again, or are you willing to try something new? It helped. Yeah, 
I think you talk about personalizing that as well. Like, do you want to be the one person who prevents us trying something new? Yeah, in, in my book, I give about 30 ideas for different tactics, let's say, for, for um, working in a bureaucracy. I, I don't want to say busting a bureaucracy, you know, because like I said, there's, there's value there somewhere. Um, but there, I don't know, you can come up with a lot more, but I came up with about 30 things that we had done along the way over my seven years in, in the government agency that helped us do a transformation in the face of a bureaucracy, let's say. Uh, and one of, one of those is personalizing things because bureaucracies try really hard to be impersonal. Yeah. And of course, when you're a bureaucrat in the agency, you're not thinking about any individuals. You're thinking about 8 million applications, that's all, right? Uh, and it, it becomes a very different story. It's, it's, it's so easy to apply bureaucrat, uh, intrusive bureaucratic controls when you're just thinking of a number. Yeah. But if you're thinking about you know, um, uh, John who is trying to immigrate, Rather than that, it's much harder to stick with this, you know, kind of impersonal bureaucracy thing, right? So, so one of my techniques is to make sure it stays personal, to tell stories about individuals, um, make it clear that the things people in the government are doing have an impact on actual individuals. Um, so we, we did a lot of that. Yeah, that's, that's a great tactic. You couldn't just ignore MD-102. What did you actually do in terms of your own bureaucracy? That's um, a, a long and wonderful story. Uh, <laughs> I, I would love to tell you the whole story, but um, it, it goes on for a while uh, because it was a seven-year struggle, really. Um, what, what we wound up doing is um, getting permission to try new approaches, trying approaches that were very much streamlined um, and, and supportive of new ways of, of doing technology initiatives. Then building a formal policy around them because the government loves formal policies, yeah, yeah, of course. And it, yeah. Like I said, that's what it's about. It's a bureaucracy. So um, we, were, we, we faced this funny challenge of can you take agile ways of working and make them bureaucratic, um, which sounds like a bad thing to do. But again, there's good bureaucracy and bad bureaucracy. So the question was, could, could we actually formalize a policy? And we realized we could by looking at the objectives. So uh, instead of saying, uh, when we created our own policy, instead of saying you have to do scrum and you have to have stand-ups every day and whatever, we said what you have to do is deploy very frequently. And you have to involve users in, in creating the thing. And you have to, so all of those kind of outcome levels or impact levels of things. Uh, we wrote a policy that said this is what teams have to do. Uh, I think uh, in the UK, GDS wound up doing something pretty exactly. similar to that, right? Yeah, with the service standard. Yeah, yeah exactly. with the service standard. Um, so once we formalized it, then we could sort of put it through the bureaucratic channels, you know, and, and get people to sign it and approve it and whatever. Um, so we created, uh, it turned out we could... Um, create something, I, I asked if I could write a policy that said all this, and, and my experts on bureaucracy said, no, you can't, you're not authorized to write policy. And I asked, can I write a management directive like MD-102? They said, no, you can't do that. You don't have the authority. Uh, so I said, what can I do exactly? And they said, oh, you can write a management instruction. So we wrote a management instruction, essentially saying DevOps is required and Agile is required, uh, but again, in different words. 
Um, and the great thing about that um, was that auditors, when they come and audit you, and you're constantly being audited by the Government Accountability Office, by inspectors general, um, they like to compare your written policy to what you're actually doing. And so we could give them this very formal policy, and they would check to make sure all of my teams were following it. And if they weren't, they would ding them and say, you gotta start being agile. You know, I never would have expected that from government auditors to say you gotta be more agile, but that, actually they did. <laughs> uh, and everything worked out beautifully, except for the fact that I had this policy and uh, officially MD-102 was the policy and everybody was supposed to follow that one. So uh, we wound up doing something that was, what it sort of looked like was we made a mapping from our policy to MD-102. And we said, by doing this thing here in our policy, we're satisfying the intent of this thing in MD-102. We, we actually mapped it out that way in a formal document. And we got uh, approval. This is a way to customize MD-102. You know, this, this fulfills the same intent as MD-102. Uh, and it took a lot of negotiating and you know, uh, incremental change, let's say, but we got there. So you went from uh, kind of an 18-month release cycle to, to where did you get Three to? Three times a day on Three our main systems, day. yeah. We had built a, a DevOps continuous integration, continuous delivery sort of pipeline, so it was very automated. Uh, we had built a lot of security controls right into that automated security testing, um, uh, ways to verify compliance with a lot of our requirements. And we had trained people to work quickly like that. So we were delivering about three times a day. Of course, they were small deliveries. That's the idea. Yeah. Instead of doing a, a big risky delivery every 18 months, we were doing tiny deliveries three times a day. And we were able to uh, institutionalize that essentially as the way that we worked. In fact, uh, at one point, we decided that all deployments should be done during normal working hours. Nobody could come in over the weekend and, yeah. and deploy code. Uh, because it's riskier that way, right? During working hours, you can see if some bad result comes and you can fix it right away and everybody's there. And if you've built good monitoring tools, you know if something goes wrong very quickly. Uh, and um, uh, you can fix things right away. You can roll back anything that caused a problem. Um, so, so we just sort of institutionalize it. This is, this is the way we do things now. And how did the overseers kind of react to this new way of working? Yeah, they said you have to use the old way. <laughs> of course. Um, you know, the initial reaction was, no, you can't do that. It says right here, you have to write 87 documents. You know, you, you can't do that. Um, we were able to show them that they would get much better results um, the way that we were working. And uh, you have to do that by building a sort of a, a flywheel. You know, you, you deliver. And they were used to projects that didn't deliver anything for five years. And we said not, all, not only did we deliver code, but we actually made an impact on metrics that mattered, right? And we showed that after one week. And if you do that often enough, if every week you're showing results and you're showing that you're using money wisely, uh, then you build a lot of trust and the trust accumulates and then they say, yeah, actually this is pretty good. Let's find a way to make it possible for you to do this. Um, and that's, that's what happened. Um, part of it was, you know, if you're writing 87 documents and they're really long documents, as many of these were, you can be pretty sure there's nobody actually reading them, yeah. right? We all know yeah. that. 
And so essentially the, the overseers were getting this big stack of paper. They didn't have time to look at it. And yet they were responsible for making good decisions based on that stack of paper. So they had this kind of insecurity buried deep inside, you know, that, that they couldn't really manage it that way. And we said, uh, actually, you don't need 87 documents. You need four numbers. We're going to give you four numbers. And that's everything you need to know. And when they realized that we were right, you know, that's just the four numbers, then they were very happy to get rid of all the ex excess documentation they didn't need. Yeah, and you, they could see those numbers changing kind of every time they engage with you again. And um, the old way of doing things was based on exceptions when things went badly wrong, yeah. right? So they would approve starting the project. And then they wouldn't be involved again unless the project went out of the bounds of you know, schedule and cost um, parameters, which they all did eventually, right? But that might be two years down the road or three years down the road. So for those three years, the overseers had no control over the project at all. They only did when they had to fix things in the end, and then it was too late. And we said, not only are we willing to give you control all the way, but we want you to have control all the way. Every month, or every month we wanna give you a report on how we're doing, and every quarter we wanna sit down with you and you can tell us we're doing a bad job or you want, you want us to change something we're doing. So you're gonna have much more control over things and you're gonna be able to stop bad uh, problems before they become you know, unfixable yeah. and get into the press and you know, get to Congress's attention. Did, uh, one of the benefits of Agile, I guess, is you can stop stuff earlier, you know, yeah. if, you've, if you've succeeded. Is that, yeah. a, is that an that's, effect you saw? Yeah, no, that's, that was part of the thinking. Um, we were uh, deliberately, we added essentially to, to the Agile concept that we were going to be able to dashboard our results all the way through, right? So we were gonna actually show business results or impact on the mission uh, at every step along the way. And because we were using an agile set of practices, we knew that we can change course whenever we needed to. We could stop and whatever we delivered up to that point was still good. Um, so we knew we, we were gonna be giving the overseers a lot of flexibility. And it's very hard to explain that in the abstract, right? We can talk about it here because we share an understanding of that. Um, but what really convinced them was when we showed them. Uh, one, one example of that was um, we, uh, we had this, uh, you could think of it as a shopping cart abandonment rate problem. You know, we had uh, an application that employers used to subscribe to this system where they could verify whether employees were authorized to work in the US. And companies that started the sign up process usually didn't finish it. Only 40% of them finished it. And uh, we said, we're gonna, we're gonna fix that. And we started working on it, and we got it from 40% to 60% to some slightly higher number, and then we, we saw we, we just couldn't make it budge. You know, it wasn't going anywhere. And uh, we had to hypothesize that this was because a lot of people were just trying the system out to see how it worked, and you know, there were a lot of people who weren't serious about signing up or something like that. But in any case, we said to the overseers, stop spending your money on this, it's not working. You know, let's, let's spend the money on something else where we really can make an impact. And that was a new idea to them, you know, that any project team would come to them and say, stop spending money on us. Um, but it made sense to everybody. You know, we'd rather do something else where we can make an impact. Yeah. 
in the in the book, uh, the delicate art of bureaucracy, you, you as you said, you talk about some patterns and plays you can make uh, working with these bureaucracies. Uh, I can't possibly speak to you without asking about the monkey, uh, the sumo wrestler, and the razor. Can yes. you tell us a bit more about those? Yes, those are those are in the subtitle of the book, right? It's, it's the delicate art of bureaucracy: digital transformation with the monkey, the razor, and the sumo wrestler. So to explain it. Um, I said there were about 30 plays or tactics that we tried. Uh, we found that they, they fell into these three categories. Uh, they were almost personalities. You know, there, there was a different personality involved in uh, 10, 10, 10 of these, of these uh, techniques. And one of those personalities uh, I thought of as the monkey. Monkeys, you know, are mischievous. And almost every culture around the world has stories about mischievous monkeys. So the monkey persona is mischievous and wants to try things just to see what happens. And so about 10 of these uh, tactics fell into the category of being mischievous and trying things. The classic monkey technique I call provoke and observe. I, I borrowed that term from Christopher Avery and, and uh, something he wrote. Provoke and observe, which sounds sort of like the agile idea of inspect and adapt. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of provoke and observe is you do something that you, you shouldn't be doing uh, or that's on the margins and see what happens. And sometimes the result is nobody complains. And, and then you say, oh, I guess we can do that. Uh, sometimes the result is you get pushback. And if that happens, you know exactly where the pushback's coming from and what exactly they're objecting to. And then you can engage you know, from that. So on these 85 documents, uh, they each had a template of all the sections that we were supposed to fill out. And typically, we wrote really long answers to each one because we were always afraid that the overseers would say, no, that's no good. You have to write more. So we wrote a lot. As a monkey move, uh, we tried just writing really short answers to each section of the template. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't illegal. It wasn't outside the rules, but it was kind of at the edge, right? And uh, so we wrote really brief answers, and we even had people whose job it was to make sure that all the answers were short. This was our quality control. And um, we tried it to see what would happen, and the result was a surprise. Nobody objected. In fact, everybody loved it. You know, they, they said, well, why are people writing really long answers to these things? It's easy questions. Uh, so then we uh, did the monkey thing again. We stopped writing some of the documents if they didn't seem to apply to our situation. You know, if they were more about building Coast Guard ships than about building software. We had something called an integrated logistical support plan that we had to write that didn't make any sense. So we stopped writing and uh, word came back, uh, I don't know about this, but you know what, actually, okay, yeah, you know, do it because we don't want to read that document. That's just, that's just nonsense. Um, so that's the monkey in operation. And there are a lot of other techniques I associate with a monkey, the troublemaker, uh, so, uh, uh, personalizing things like we discussed before. That's the monkey. Um, the razor is the persona of um, uh, keeping things lean by trimming away waste. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically this is applying a lean approach to bureaucracy because one of the bad characteristics bureaucracy takes on is it, it becomes bloated, right? You, you wind up just doing a lot of work that you just don't need to be doing. 
And um, so uh, when we started really trimming those documents down, that was the razor. You know, we're going to cut out the questions that don't make sense. We're going to cut out the documents that don't make sense. But we could do this with quite a lot of what the bureaucracy was telling us to do. You know, we can accomplish the same control the bureaucracy is trying to accomplish, but do it in a leaner way without, you know, copying every form in triplicate, you know, or whatever uh, is causing a lot of waste. Um, the way I thought about it is in lean manufacturing and lean techniques, you, th you think in terms of a value stream. To produce your product, you go through all these activities, and the way to reduce your lead time is by getting rid of waste in all those activities, right? And so I said, uh, bureaucracy is a manufacturing process that manufactures compliance. That's what comes out at the end, compliance. And uh, there could be waste in that process. And so can you manufacture the same compliance but with less waste in the process? That's the razor. Um, and so the razor had about 10 techniques associated with it for doing that. The sumo wrestler uh, is the fun one to explain. And so I should say I, I lived in Japan for a year once. And as a Westerner living in Japan, you wind up loving sumo wrestling because it's, it, you just do. Sumo wrestling is, is one of those sports that uh, it seems silly at first and then you, you get an appreciation for it. So the way sumo works is you have two enormous sumo wrestlers and they go boom into each other, right? The object of the game is to push your opponent out of this little circle on the ground or force them to hit the ground uh, with something other than their feet. And if you think about that, uh, it's a very subtle sport. It doesn't sound subtle, but if you've got two really big people pushing against each other, if one of them pushes too hard, the other one just eases up, right? And so that one goes flying. Um, and if you don't push hard enough, then the other guy's gonna push you out of the ring. So it's this balance of forces, and the, um, the way that you win is you use your opponent's strength against them. Uh, so we said we can do that with a bureaucracy too. We could use the strength of the bureaucracy against itself, because bureaucracies are big, heavy, yeah. you know, ponderous things. Um, so that was the technique what we used when we wrote th this policy. You know, we said, um, if we can turn this agile way of working into something that looks bureaucratic, then all the powers of bureaucracy are gonna be behind us in enforcing it. Um, so that's, that's the way we, we played our hand on that one. And there are lots of ways to use this, you know, use the power of the bureaucracy against itself. Those are the plays of the sumo wrestler. Yeah, that's great. So you've been working with Amazon Web Services now for about five years, and you're working with a lot of large organizations doing digital transformation or helping them do digital transformation. Do you see parallels uh, between these organizations and your work in the public sector? It was a, a surprise for me <laughs> when, I, when I started to speak at conferences with, with broad audiences from all kinds of industries, uh, and I would tell them about MD-102 and the bureaucracy. People would come up to me afterwards and say, I work in a bank and we have the same thing there. <laughs> um, it, I think it's, there's not as much difference as people think between public sector and private sector. The difference is between large traditional organizations and new, nimble, small organizations, right? That's really the split, and, and it's the same in government and private sector. Of course, it's not the same, right? But, but 
in general, the, uh, the tactics that work in one work in the other pretty well. So large traditional enterprises have a lot of bureaucracy. And the reason why they have bureaucracy uh, is because they've, they've been successful at doing something. That's why they're large, right? They're very good at something. And they want to continue it. So they, they, all the things that they've been doing, they encode or you know, uh, they, they make it policy, they make it firm, you know, they write it in stone, essentially. Uh, and they create bureaucracy around it. And that's, um, that's good. It's risk reducing for them. It supports what, what's making them successful. It's just when you want to make a big change, it resists the change. Um, and that's typically the problem that they face when I, when I meet with them on behalf of Amazon Web Services. They found really good ways to get in their own way. Then you add to that uh, regulated industries, or just about, I mean, every industry is regulated in some way. Some are heavily regulated. Um, but compliance frameworks require bureaucracy. That's the whole point of a compliance framework, right? It says you have to have formally defined processes, you have to make them auditable, you have to prove that you followed your processes. Sarbanes-Oxley, for example, is, is a, it's a really good example. It says you, know, you, ha you have to have controls, you have to be able to sign off on the fact that the controls were applied and all of that. It's bureaucracy. So any large traditional organization is going to be very good at its own bureaucracy. And when you try to do something very different, you're, you're going to be coming up against that bureaucracy. And so a lot of the same ways of thinking as in the government apply for those. So Mark, you're writing another book now. Can you tell us a bit more about what that's about? I'm writing, um, I think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, and it's a hard one. I'm writing about ethics in digital transformation. And what's hard about it for me is I don't want to just repeat what everybody else is saying. There's a lot of passionate stuff out there. A lot of people are angry. <laughs> most, most of the writing I read on ethics comes from anger, you know? Um, I, I don't like to just repeat what other people are saying, and I don't really come from a position of anger. Um, I like nuance, as you can tell when I talk about bureaucracy. Uh, so that, that makes it a little hard to talk about ethics. And also, I don't want to just preach to people. You know, it's not about my opinions and you should do this, you shouldn't do that. So um, I wanted to come at it from a, a different angle. And I realized there's a connection to my bureaucracy book. And um, you'll probably have to read my book to, to see the full implications of this connection, let's say. But bureaucracy is an ethics. There's an ethics behind bureaucracy. And it, it has to do with achieving fairness through impersonality. Uh, the idea of a bureaucracy is we have rules, and the rules apply to everybody. And that's fair. Uh, and a secondary idea of bureaucracy is uh, employees should leave them their personal selves at home when they come to work, right? Your, your job in an organization is to do whatever your role is, the way it's specified. And you shouldn't come to work with personal opinions or biases or anything else. You leave all that at home. So today, things are changing a lot uh, as we move to more digital ways of working. And that kind of impersonality doesn't work very well anymore, you know, especially when you think about diversity and inclusion. And inclusion is, please bring yourself to work. We value <laughs> yourself, you know? Uh, and and it's, 
going to be less rule-based. And uh, when you stop being rule-based, then you have to ask the question, where, where does fairness come from then? You know, because the whole idea of the bureaucracy is fairness through that. Not that it achieves it, you know, in all cases, right? Um, but this starts to raise these really interesting questions about uh, what is the ethical stance of a digital organization? How does it compare to the bureaucratic organization? What are you replacing those bureaucratic ethical controls with? And I find that it, um, uh, decision makers often have one foot in that bureaucratic world and one foot in the new digital world, and it's causing a lot of conflict for them. And that's what I'm trying to work out in this book. What is that conflict? How is it affecting the way people act? And what can we do about it? Is it, is it too early to ask when we might see the book published? Actually, it's not. Uh, my publisher gave me a date. Oh, so, okay, that's uh, good. end of July next year. Okay, that's good. Um, I've got two final questions. Um, what would be your kind of top advice for bureaucrats in a large organization working with, say, digital delivery teams? In my book, I, I actually have a chapter on that. Um, if, you're a bureau if you're a bureaucrat, here's how you build a bureaucracy that has the good characteristics instead of the bad characteristics. So what I consider to be a bad bureaucracy is a bureaucracy that is bloated, that is coercive, and that doesn't change, that's petrified, you know, that doesn't learn. Those are the characteristics characteristics of a bad bureaucracy. A good bureaucracy is the opposite. It's not bloated, it's lean. It's not coercive, it's enabling or supportive. It's not petrified, it learns constantly. Um, there was a, a great example of learning bureaucracy that I came across in a book. It had to do with the California Department of Highways where you know if you, if you look at uh, traffic signs, road signs on highways, pretty much around the world, there are differences, but uh, in the US, they, they all have a green background and they're written in a certain font and so on. Uh, you know, bureaucratically controlled. This is the way signs are done. But the way they arrived at that was they tried a lot of experiments. They tried, you know, different colors for the background, different fonts, different ways, uh, shapes for the signs and all of that. And they did it in a very bureaucratic way. They were a bunch of engineers, you know, who just, and they would say, you have to do the science this way, and then they changed it, you have to do the science this way. And they learned over time, and it was no less bureaucratic, but yet they arrived at a really good result, and it was a bureaucracy that was effective in preventing highway deaths. So uh, that's an example of what you want to do as a bureaucrat, is to con you know, create that kind of a bureaucracy where you're using its superpowers rather than its disadvantages. Yeah, yeah. And what, um, what words of hope might you offer to a digital delivery team who's maybe starting up in a, a big bureaucracy? Yeah, we went from 18-month release cycle to three times a day in not just any government agency, but one of the most bureaucratic because it had that challenge of being a merger of, of other uh, agencies. We did it, and it was hard. Sometimes I, I tell people that I banged my head against the wall for seven years, and then the wall started to move. You know, it's not easy, but it definitely happens. Yeah, that's good. Mark, thanks very much for speaking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.